From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Michael Silverstein, class of 2018, who is a graduate student at the University of Oregon studying decision psychology. The research Mike is currently doing is incredibly relevant to our times. The focus of my current research is the focus of a, of a lot of people's lives right now, it feels like, which is current coronavirus pandemic. We were lucky enough that we saw an opportunity to study some things we were interested in, and uh, we went for a, a National Science Foundation rapid grant, and we were uh, awarded that grant. So we have been working on, right now we have funding for five longitudinal waves. So we collected a large nationwide panel in the U.S. And uh, we've been coming back to them every couple of weeks and asking them some of the same questions, but also some new questions that are sort of unique to what's going on at the moment. So it's really cool. Uh, we've been getting to see in real time uh, what the U.S. public is feeling and how they're responding. Are you allowed to give me an example of a, of a question that is part of that survey? One thing we'll ask people is to, to what degree can you imagine being infected with coronavirus? And that's sort of a, an experiential measure of perceived risk. The more easy it is for you to imagine that you could be infected, the more likely you are to perceive high risk of infection. So that's sort of a, and that's actually part of a, a sort of six point scale we're using, or sorry, a six item scale that mm. we're using. Uh, so that's only one question of, of several to gauge perceived risk, perceived personal risk. But we also ask people stuff like, to what extent do you believe the U.S. water supply is at risk due to COVID-19? <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah. And one thing to, to keep in mind is um, the, the first wave happened back in mid-February. Uh, so it's actually before coronavirus was known to have started spreading in the U.S. So we have sort of a, a baseline before it was in the U.S. And because of that, we sort of took a, a shotgun approach to our questioning. We asked about a wide variety of things because we had no idea what was going to happen. Obviously, we can't tell the future. And we were lucky enough with a few things. For example, one of the things we asked about was we told people about a hypothetical treatment, a hypothetical experimental treatment, and asked people about their emotional responses toward it, how positively or negatively do you feel toward this treatment. We also asked people to make uh, sort of judgments about the treatment. How safe do you think this treatment is? How effective do you think this treatment is? Uh, how likely are you to undergo this treatment if you were infected? How important is it for people in your community to undergo this treatment? It's kind of crazy that we did that because lo and behold, we hear all this stuff about hydroxychloroquine, mm. um, even stuff about leech and household cleaning products, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, now the, new, the new stuff from Oxford. Yep, yep. 
and it's sort of it's good news so far, but I'm sort of worried that it's it's making the rounds too early because what we what we find in our research is that people who feel more negatively toward coronavirus also feel more positively toward treatments. There, there's sort of this motivated optimism we're finding that uh, because they feel worse about coronavirus, they automatically feel better about treatments. And because of that, they perceive them as more effective and they are more likely to undergo treatment. These are sort of issues with bringing these sort of under-evidenced treatments to light early on, especially if they are as accessible as something like hydroxychloroquine has been because now all of a sudden there's these people taking hydroxychloroquine sometimes preventatively and it may not have bad side effects for them although there's some evidence that it might but even if that's not the case they're taking it away from patients who use it such as lupus patients people with severe arthritis and other people who need this medication. There's actually a shortage now of hydroxychloroquine for people who actually need it because of all the people who are taking it unnecessarily to protect themselves from the pandemic, which there's still no evidence that it effectively does. I'm going to press the rewind button a little bit here and go back, <laughs> back, back in time. How and when... Did you first become interested in doing the type of work that you're currently doing? I'm going to give a, a shout out to Muhlenberg and the Muhlenberg Psychology Department. I encourage all current undergrads who are listening to this now, take advantage of your opportunities at Muhlenberg to do research. You get to do the sort of work at Muhlenberg that's more similar to work that I do now as a graduate student than it is similar to what undergraduates at the University of Oregon are doing, if that makes sense. You have a unique opportunity in the fact that uh, there are no graduate students that are doing research at Muhlenberg. It's just professors and undergrads, which means that undergrads get to work directly with professors who are making an impact in communities and getting to do novel research. And uh, it's just overall a great opportunity. That being said, I was lucky enough to get to start working in research labs in my sophomore year at Muhlenberg. I worked with Dr. Rudsky. I also worked with a few other people during my time at Muhlenberg. Worked with Dr. Edelman, Dr. Michnowitz, and Dr. Frazier. And uh, all of them are fantastic. I recommend working with all of them. But that's sort of how I got started, was I got involved in research and I explored with the research. All of those uh, professors do very different things within research. And because of that, my background in research from Muhlenberg was pretty diverse. And it allowed me to really explore, see what I wanted to see and learn what I wanted to do. And basically how I got into decision-making research was because I was going to go to a national conference to present research I did. And the keynote speaker was someone by the name of Dan Ariely. And he has written some New York Times bestsellers, uh, such as uh, Predictably Irrational. 
which is on uh, behavioral economics and the psychology of decision making. I decided that before I was going to listen to his keynote, I would check out his book. And that just led me to a series of rabbit holes. I read that book. I read the sequel to it, or not really a sequel, but further books that he wrote. I read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And uh, I sort of just got obsessed with this area of judgment and decision-making. I was uh, lucky enough to get accepted to Ohio State to work with uh, someone I really admired, Dr. Alan Peters, and it all went from there. Ironically, of course, I imagine that your daily life has been affected by the thing that you are actually studying, but we'll get to that. Before the pandemic started affecting everybody, what was your daily schedule like on campus? I usually get in around... 9.30, one of the great things about being a grad student is uh, you sort of have flexibility and you, you don't have to be there at the same time every day. So I would, I would sort of go in around 9.30. Sometimes I would have a, a course such as structural equation modeling at 10 a.m. So I, I would do that. But generally, um, my day-to-day work is pretty diverse because what, what I'll end up doing some days is just checking and replying to emails and other days I'll be sort of hiding from the world and writing all day and sort of it's great to have the flexibility as a graduate student to be able to especially in a, in a funded PhD program to be able to do my work at, at any time I feel like doing it. There's times where I'm up until 3 a.m. writing and I'll email my advisor and she'll email me at 5 a.m. when she wakes up and she'll say, like, I can't believe you were up. But, <laughs> but uh, that's just how it goes. So there, there's not really a, a typical day because one day we're designing experiments, another day we're running participants, uh, another day we're, we're writing, and then there's some days where we're doing a mix of all of those things. So it's definitely a, a fun life. I think being a researcher and being a graduate student, we have some more flexibility than faculty do with our day-to-day lives. But um, it's definitely not repetitive or, or boring. So how has the pandemic actually affected your daily life right now? It hasn't affected it a whole lot other than uh, I'm stuck at home. But even still, uh, every once in a while, I will venture out and go into the lab for a change of scenery. I find, especially when I'm trying to write, it's a little more difficult to write at home than it is to write in my office. Or uh, usually I'd like to go to a place like a coffee shop where there's people moving around. I sort of like the, the activity around me when I'm writing. But uh, I, I find it's nice to, to still be able to, to go in and appropriately socially distance. But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of my stuff is now being done from home, which sort of the flexibility of what I do is it can all pretty easily still be done from home. We have collaborators uh, still in Ohio from when I was there. 
and we have collaborator, a collaborator in Sweden. Uh, so a lot of what we do already has been over Zoom, uh, because we're having to talk to people back in Ohio and we're having to talk to people in Sweden. So because of that, honestly, not a whole lot has changed. It's definitely been sort of a difficult with work-life balance to, to try to figure out when I should be binging Netflix versus when I should be uh, writing a paper. And uh, I sort of go back and forth on both extremes of that. Mm. Um, but, you know, as long as the work gets done, that's what matters. You said that it was somewhat unclear whether you were a first year, second year, third year <laughs> student. When do you expect to have your degree? I would say probably in about four years. I, I always joke that's a dangerous question to ask a PhD student. My mom has a PhD and it took her seven and a half years. Uh, I know some people who got out with their PhD in three years. Wow. Um, so it, it's definitely, um, you know, it, it takes as long as it takes. I luckily have been in a type of field where I am able to collect data relatively quickly and sort of uh, in psychology, that's what drives the, the pace of your PhD, the, the speed with which you're able to conduct and collect studies and analyze them and write them up and, and get them out. In my area in particular, uh, we tend to be able to be pretty quick about that. But it's also sort of a balance because after the PhD, I would love to do a postdoc and then uh, hopefully end up in a faculty position. But for, for both of those things, you need publications. So I'm not really in, a, in necessarily a, a rush to get out. Uh, mm. Like I, I said, there, there are some good freedoms you have as a grad student, and uh, it's a good time to, to work on and, and build up your, your resume as a solid basis for the rest of your career. So I'm sort of, I view myself as that stage where I'm, I'm trying to build that foundation for my career. I'm not uh, obviously in my career yet. I'm still in school. And the work I'm doing now hopefully doesn't necessarily define my career, but it's definitely uh, a good start. What would you say are the biggest challenges of your work? And what are the most rewarding parts of your work if those two things happen to be different from each other? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the biggest challenges of my work was sort of the, the, the sheer volume of it, I would say. And uh, in sort of every academic discipline, you're expected to be sort of the, the master of your own minutia, uh, which means uh, doing a lot of reading and keeping up with the current literature. Um, and you're also expected to, to publish and be part of that conversation in the literature. So you're, you're expected to, um, to be constantly reading. You're expected to, uh, be designing, uh, experiments and, and answering novel questions and, and then disseminating that to the world. Uh, so there, there's sort of a, a lot of, uh, expectation sort of inherent in being in an academic setting. So that's sort of difficult, but I think it's also sort of what makes it fun to me that having 
all those different hats. Sometimes I can, I can take a break from writing and I can just read up on what everyone else is doing in the field right now. Or I can sort of ignore that for a little bit and focus on my own studies. It's all sort of a conversation that you have to connect it all at some point. But I would say my, my favorite part about what I do is something that, that stuck with me is something that Dr. Elman said, which is in my, my psych stats course, uh, at Muhlenberg. And it was that she became a psychologist because of that, that feeling of when you run a statistical model and it pops up significant and you now know something that no one else in the world knows. And you, you sort of have this like little secret and you can, you can then share it with everyone. I think it's really fun to learn. I think research is the best way to learn. Uh, I'm a assist in that sense. So I, I think it's just a really fun way to engage with knowledge and, and sort of be on that cutting edge of knowledge. All right, I'm going to ask you a very career-centery question. So uh, <laughs> a, along with, with being a, a, an accomplished student at Muhlenberg, you were, you were also an athlete. Can you tell me the ways in which possibly being an athlete have helped you in your academic pursuits? I think first and foremost, being an athlete taught me time management. Having to, to go to practices every day. I did track and field, so that's a, a two-season sport. So there's uh, indoor in the winter, and there's outdoor in the spring. But there's also sort of preseason that we start in the fall at some point. It's almost a, a year-round pursuit. So definitely time management, something that I had to learn as a student athlete, you know, because there, there's practice every day. There's meets on the weekends, and track meets take up a whole lot of your weekend. <laughs> it's sort of an all-day event on Saturday. And you want to be able to cheer on your teammates instead of hiding in the corner and working. So I think that's first and foremost what it taught me and what's been useful for grad school is knowing when it's time to work and when it's time to not work and do uh, important other things, be it have a social life or uh, go to bed <laughs> or just watch TV because uh, work-life balance is really difficult. So that's one thing that athletics taught me. It also taught me to some extent to be persistent. Academia is sort of a, not to be pessimistic, but a failure culture. You're constantly asking for, for money. Uh, and with this coronavirus research, we were lucky enough to get funded. But usually that's not the case. Usually, uh, at least the first time around, you said, you're, you're told, no, we're not going to fund you. We don't think your project is worthy of funding right now. Or you submit a paper and they say, we're not even going to review this. We're just going to just reject it. Submit it somewhere else. And so you, you sort of have to get used to to failing because that's just part of the job. And I think athletics is pretty similar. And especially as a track and field athlete, as a thrower, right, where we do a lot of lifting and uh, we 
lift until failure sometimes, right? <laughs> Which sounds a lot worse than it is. But definitely uh, seeing your barriers and then telling yourself, I can push through this is something that being an athlete taught. For anyone out there listening, whether it's a new Muhlenberg student or someone else who wants to eventually do the type of work that you are doing and will continue to do, what recommendations would you give that person? Start research as early as you can. Don't be afraid to talk to your professors. Don't be afraid to ask questions and, and ask hard questions because that's where research lies. It's in the questions that we, we can't answer intuitively and we have to answer them with an experiment. And, and that's what's so great about it. So talk to your professors, ask questions, get started in research. And my, my other big thing is do some statistics courses. I know a lot of people don't love statistics, but statistics is the only way we can get as close to knowing something as we can get in psychology. We can't necessarily know anything in psychology. It's a science, and we can't prove anything, but stats is the closest that we can get to any sort of knowledge within the field. That being said, I find uh, statistics to be extremely useful at all stages of the research process. When I'm trying to design an experiment, I often have the analysis in mind and trying to optimize the design of the experiment so that my, my analyses will be able to find what I hope to find. Definitely a knowledge of statistics is not just useful for analysis. It's also useful for experimental design and just thinking through problems. So definitely I encourage statistics no matter how much people dislike hearing that. <laughs> I'm going to add on one more, just because. Um, we all know that doctoral programs can be extremely competitive in their admissions process. So you were accepted originally so at, the, at Ohio mm-hmm. as a cohort of how many? As a cohort of, in the whole psychology department, it was 32 mm-hmm. within... The decision-making program, there were two of us. Two. So there were two of you, which I happen to know. But (laughs) so given that, it can be difficult to get into a doctoral program of whatever sort. How would you tell potential applicants to make themselves the best applicant out there? What advice would you give those people? It's all about experience and being able to speak to your experience. Being able to market yourself is important. And I tell people all the time, every experience you have is something that, that is going to get you ready for grad school, right? Being a student athlete helps me get ready for grad school. Working uh, in the career center, as I did for four years at Muhlenberg, helped me get ready for grad school. Doing research at Muhlenberg certainly helped me <laughs> get ready for grad school. So all of those things are, are, are marketable skills and being able to, to tell your story in a coherent and concise way is an extremely important skill for getting into grad school. Also, don't be afraid to reach out to professors, right? 
no matter how big uh, someone's name is in the field, they're still a person, right? And if you email them, you should always email people that you're planning on applying to work with. You email them, ask them questions, tell them a little bit about your research and how it's related to research you would love to do in their lab. And overall, be excited, be enthusiastic, be persistent. Professors, especially in competitive labs, see a lot of applications every year. If they recognize your name and you stand out, that's going to go a long way for you getting in a position. Also, again, academia is a failure culture. Don't be discouraged by not getting in. There's lots of people I know who didn't get in the first time. They got a fantastic position in a lab somewhere else as a lab manager. They learned a lot about lab organization that I didn't know as someone who went directly into grad school. They learned a lot about the uh, specific literature and in some ways being taking that year off, whether intentional or not, and getting some more experience in a lab can often set you up better than going directly into grad school. So don't be discouraged. Pursue that dream. Keep pursuing it. I know someone who got rejected from grad school five times. And when they finally got into grad school, they got the most prestigious scholarship in the program. And they're, they're doing great research and they're, it's great. So don't give up. Just get, uh, get more experience and, and learn from your, your past failures. This episode of 2402 was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded remotely and engineered by Paul Kremposky at the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.